Well, over a thousand miles north of Moscow, Russia, is a city called Murmansk. It's the biggest city north of the Arctic Circle. And so being that far north, Murmansk experiences what's called polar night. This is when the sun doesn't get above the horizon for days at a time, but sort of skims and skirts below the skyline. For these days or or months for some folks around the world, the sun doesn't shine at all. They still get some dim light, some haze from the sun below the surface, but there's nothing like a a sunny sky, right? Last year in Murmansk, uh, the first sunrise was greeted with great jubilation. Uh, The polar night had lasted for 40 days, and, and then came the sun, People convened at a spot called Solnechnaya Gorka, meaning sunny hill. There was dancing and there was music. As one writer put it on a headline, the locals were over the moon to finally witness daylight. Whenever I see a pun worthy of repeating, which is pretty much every pun, I want to repeat it. That's a good one. Maybe some of you have lived at certain times in your life in places with minimal sunlight. But for most of us, we can hardly imagine what that would be like, can we? For some who live in those places, there are physical and mental effects to sleep order and mood. But regardless of your mood, you have to start missing the sun at some point, right? There's a reason we equate happiness with a sunny disposition. We associate joy with brightness. Well, in the passage our brother Michael just read for us, we see another sunrise promised, don't we? Except this one doesn't banish the darkness of an Arctic circle, circle village, but the darkness of the whole world. So we continue on, church family, in this wonderful study in the book of Luke. Luke is the third gospel account in the New Testament, a historical narrative that uh, recounts from eyewitness sources the words and deeds of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Luke was a physician. He compiled this history in probably around the 60s AD, early 60s AD. And so far, we've seen him, like any good writer, set the stage for his story. He's done so by showing us two pregnancy announcements. And today we see the first of those announcements fulfilled and a baby born. So in the passage just read, let's see three things this morning, church. Three points. A promise fulfilled, a mouth opened, and a sunrise coming. A promise fulfilled, a mouth opened, and a sunrise coming. So first, a promise fulfilled. Look with me at verse 57. Luke writes, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Now this seems like just kind of a normal historical narrative detail, right? But church, this is loaded with meaning, this first sentence in our text. The time has come for Elizabeth to give birth. And that time is when God had promised for this to be fulfilled. So skim back to me to verse 19. So there we we see the angel Gabriel had appeared to Zechariah the priest about nine months or more earlier. And had told him this day was coming. And do you remember Zechariah's dubious answer his doubtful answer he wasn't quite sure he could take the lord's word for it and so he had said well how from an unbelieving heart he had said how can i know this will happen 
Now, I'm, I'm beyond, my wife is beyond childbearing age. I'm an old man. Gabriel had said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Where do you stand? It's kind of what I read there. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So behold, you will be silent and unable to speak. What? Until the day these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Zechariah has, un- has disbelieved the word of the Lord. And, and after that, he's disciplined by the Lord. He's unable to speak since he did not believe the spoken words of God. He doubted God's words, so God took away his words. Do you see that? But now in verse 57, the time has come. God's word, which Zechariah had doubted, has come to pass. In verse 58, we see another thing Gabriel had promised come true as well. Look there in verse 58. Because back in verse 14, Gabriel had said, you know, when you have this son, there will be joy and gladness. And isn't that what we see in verse 58? Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. A divinely created little child has come at the divinely appointed time. God keeps his word. What an encouragement to dwell in this truth together this morning, church. The promises of God echoing down through the Bible have all either come to pass already or will finally come to pass in the future because he keeps his word. Christian, I I think this is most gloriously seen in the salvation of our souls, isn't it? God has promised to save those who turn to him in faith. He has promised both that he can save and that he will save. And he keeps his promise. He executes it to the minutest detail. There will be no part of us, of our soul, that will not be saved. Our salvation is the work of God. And isn't that good? Because God keeps his promise. I heard recently from someone, I forget who it was, so whoever you are out there, kudos. But an illustration of how you can, or we can often wrongly consider our salvation. So some of you have been to the Grand Canyon. I haven't yet. It's one on my bucket list. But imagine you're standing on the edge of one of the biggest kind of gorges in the Grand Canyon. And your task is to jump across the gorge. And so you muster up strength, you take a running start, and you jump. And you manage, for those of you who did track in high school, maybe manage 10 to 15 feet, right? Before you plummet into the depths of the canyon. Kind of a depressing example. But I think many of us think of our salvation that way, dear friends. We can jump into salvation. We can jump with faith. And try to get as far into God's good graces by ourselves as we can. But about 15 feet in, we know we've given it all we got. We're not perfect. Certainly God can accept that. And then he can finish the rest. So if we accomplished 15 feet, maybe he can finish off the next 4,500 or whatever it is to the next cliff face. He finishes the job. Church, that's wrong. 
The Bible teaches that not only are we dead in sin and unable to jump at all because we're dead, but we don't even want to jump. Read Romans 8 later today. We are opposed to God. If he commands us to jump, we're going to sit. We despise his rule in our lives. And so the story of salvation for the Bible, and praise God for this, the story of salvation from the Bible is that God wakes us up. God causes us to jump. God carries us into salvation. It's his work. He leads us over the abyss into his glorious grace. It's the work of the Lord. He has promised to do it, and he does it from beginning to end. What an encouragement for those of us who are doubting this morning. For those of us who are faulting and faltering in our faith. God promises to save. He will. If you have trusted in Jesus and are following him by his spirit, God will keep his promise to you. And the good work he has begun in you, he will bring to completion. Meditate on that. All right, back to the text, verse 59. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise a child. Circumcision was a sign that someone was a part of God's people. It was a covenantal sign. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, and this is super surprising, his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. I think it's plausible. I'd never thought about this before this past week, but I think it's plausible to assume Zechariah had kind of given his wife, all the details of his encounter with the angel over the past nine to ten months. You know, he, later he writes on a tablet. Who's to prevent him from writing on a tablet for nine straight months? This is what he said. This is what I'm thinking. I think it's plausible to think that it happened. And so she, at this point, knows who this baby is and what this baby's name should be. But her friends aren't so sure. Verse 61, they say to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And it's interesting here to to note that they made signs to Zechariah, right? Like like he couldn't hear, right? That was the first time I thought about that. Like, I mean, we know that he was struck dumb, but he can usually talk to people that are mute, well, it's actually possible, and, and it's possible from the original text in Luke 1, that, that from the wording there, that he was not only mute but deaf. He had been struck from not even hearing words. It's speculation, but it seems from here that that's definitely a possibility. So they make signs to him. He confirms his wife's name choice, verse 63. And he asked for a writing tablet. This would have been kind of wood covered with wax. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. Though they must have seen God's hand all over this, the folks gathered seemed to be amazed yet again. And what happens next, I think, should put a big smile on our faces. Our second point this morning is a mouth opened. So think about what Zachariah has just done. His name is John. He has followed, he has brought his will in line with what the angel had declared to him nine months earlier, right? He has obeyed the Lord. He has believed, trusted in the Lord, unlike what he had done before. He said, his name is John. And in my mind, that's like him saying, I believe, Lord. And so at that instant, his discipline is removed. He has learned to obey and trust the Lord. 
discipline has turned out for his good. Verse 64, and immediately Zechariah's mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Can you imagine? You've lived with your spouse for an entire pregnancy and you're old and you need help. This is a stressful, joyful time. You've beckoned him to help you around the house. He has come and gone in silence, which you probably don't mind. And now as your first child is born and the silence of the household has been disrupted with the first cries of a baby, your husband adds in to the noise by bursting out with his first audible sounds in almost a year. And what is the sound? Praise to God. Something has happened to Zachariah's heart. My first words would be whining. How could you dare do that to me? This has been the worst year of my life. Zachariah's heart has been changed by the discipline of the Lord. The God who had sent his angel to Zechariah, who had promised Zechariah a role in salvation, how merciful, who had then disciplined him in his unbelief, now has restored to Zechariah his voice. Zechariah believes the word of the Lord and his own words are given back to him. Praise the Lord. Dear Christian, we learn here about discipline under the hand of God. So as those saved by Jesus, which is most of us this morning, I trust. Not all of us. If you're not a Christian, you're more than welcome here. We're so glad you're here. But for those of us who are in Christ, we understand from the gospel that we will never be punished again. All our punishment has been placed on Jesus. There's none left for us. And so the hardship given to us by God, it will never be to punish us, but to discipline us, to bless us, to purify us, to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus, to prepare us for heaven. God is a perfect father who perfectly lovingly disciplines his children for our good and for his joy. And Zechariah is discovering that discipline here, isn't he? If you are a believer, in some measure, you have have discovered this as well in your life. J.C. Ryle says that in Zechariah we see a striking example of the benefit of affliction. He writes, Zechariah is no longer faithless, but believing. He now believes every word that Gabriel had spoken to him and every word of his message shall be obeyed. Christian, your father loves you so much. And so he will discipline you. I know last week when I was teaching you all on humility from Mary's prayer, man, I was proud last week. And God humbled me very clearly in multiple ways when I was with you. He reminded me that strength only comes from him. I know God loves me. He cares about my holiness. What about you? If you're in Christ, then hardship from God's hand is not for your punishment, but for your good. 
Discipline from your father means he loves you. How is his affliction benefiting you today? I'm not saying this to be kind of silver lining positive thinking. I'm saying this because this is just simply how God works with those he loves. Where is his affliction benefiting you today? Look at verse 65 then. Fear came on all their neighbors. Speaking of kind of reverential awe and wonder, not like panic and anxiety. They're wondering at these latest events and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Church, news got out. People talk and they were talking. Soon the the whole area, the region is humming with conversation about what had gone down in the household of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And this is not just talk for gossip's sake. This is deep consideration. They're not just talking about this because it's trending on social media. They're talking about this because this is having an effect on their hearts. There's deep consideration going on in their hearts about who in the world is this child to be? Could this be an answer to our prayers? And I think that leads us to another application for us here, church. Because do you see how God's mercy and his actions on behalf of Zechariah and Elizabeth don't stay mum, but are broadcasted? In verse 58, Elizabeth's neighbors hear that the Lord has shown great mercy to her. In verse 65, these things are broadcasted throughout the region. Christian, who is the last person who has heard how the Lord has shown great mercy to you? Can you think of it? Is it a regular habit for you to talk about what God is doing for you? Do you share it with brothers and sisters here at Loudoun Valley? Like, I get it. When you walk in, the, 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 the question everybody asks, including myself, on Sunday mornings is, how was your week? And the quick will answer is like, uh, I think it was okay. Right? Because we forget. Sunday mornings is like a, a, white, a slate wiped clean for everybody. But one thing I think you could probably talk about is like, well, this is what I've thought about, about God this past week. There's always a risk there because then you're going to be kind of the person that just kind of looks holier than thou. I think we could use some more holiers, maybe not then now, but holy folks talking about Jesus with one another. Do your neighbors and relatives hear about what God means to you? God's mercy is a mercy that gets out. It gives its recipients open mouths to proclaim, blessed is the Lord. Now, if you struggle to, to open your mouth to speak of God, I, I wonder, and, and this is meant to give you hope and joy and peace, all right? This is not meant to guilt you. I, I wonder if the problem is you're struggling to think of him at all. Life is busy. There's stress. 
and God is not at the forefront of your mind. I wonder then if the first step for you in making sure your mouth is one of those that's open to speak of the glories of God to you is to meditate upon Christ. Take time to contemplate him. To fill your mind with him. Because many of you will hear exhortations, even from this lectern, right, to, to evangelism and speaking of Christ. And many of you, in response to that, will feel like crummy Christians. You feel like you need to do more. You've, you're upset. You don't get more excited about evangelism. And I think there's some way in which that's conviction of the Holy Spirit that you need to repent of, right? But at the same time, I think that's also a, a motivation to you to dig more deeply into the truths and beauties of Jesus Christ. Many of you have heard this quote before. I've used it before from the 1800s Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane. He says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Take time with God. Fill your heart with the beauty and attractiveness of Christ. He has opened your mouth to sing his praise. So glory in who he is and let that motivate your evangelism. Zachariah's mouth is opened and the The region hears the news of a man who has come, who might be the Messiah. So finally, let's see then what Zacharias says. So we saw Mary's song last week. Now we're going to see Zacharias prophecy this week. There in verse 66, the people ask, what then will this child be? And in Zacharias prophecy, we get the answer to that question. Zechariah prophesies, and he says, By the Holy Spirit, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zechariah is praising God for sending this Messiah, this long-awaited king in the line of David who will save God's people. He calls him a a horn of salvation. That's referring to strength. It's probably looking like to a horn of a bull that signifies the bull's strength. This is a strong savior because a lot of Zechariah's song has to do with fighting the enemy and triumphing over the enemy. God has sent his Messiah to do this, to save his people. There in verses 70 to 75 It's all about, all in keeping with God's promises. That thing we thought about in our first point this morning, how God keeps his promises. This is something Zechariah says he has spoken by prophets of old. God has remembered his holy covenant. He has remembered his promise to Abraham in, in Genesis 12 to bless his people and bless the world through him. 
God is remembered. That doesn't mean he forgot and needed a a reminder to pop up on his phone. It means he has been faithful to his covenant. And all of this, verse 74, is so that his people might serve him. God has sworn by himself to accomplish his word to Abraham, and now he's making good on his promise. There in verse 76, Zechariah turns and considers his newborn son. I like to think he's, he's holding him in his arms, looking down at him, and he begins to prophesy of John's ministry. He says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. We'll see even more about John's ministry in the chapters ahead. But we get another kind of glimpse here of of his role in the the unveiling of salvation. He's sort of the warm-up band before the guys that you went to pay to see, right? He's the opening performance. Like one scholar, Daryl Bach, writes, he raises the curtain on God's salvation, a prelude to the main act. John will do this, as we'll see, Lord willing, in the next few chapters. He'll do this by plowing up the hard soil of rebellious hearts and showing Israel their need for repentance and salvation. And what will he be preparing the way for? He'll be preparing the way for a sunrise. John will be the last lowercase p prophet before the prophet comes. The word of God, Jesus himself, the Messiah. So look at verse 78. And he talks about the, the tender mercy of our God. And then he says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. The days of darkness have been many, more than any polar night above the Arctic Circle. Zechariah is prophesying and saying the sun is coming. It's almost like John's ministry is the chirping of the birds before the dawn. If you've been sleeping with the windows open, which is a good idea this time of year, you will, you'll hear the birds before the sunlight starts to show on the horizon. And so John's called to do. Repair the way for the sun to come. Friends, each one of us has darkness in our lives. Each one of us knows, like Brad prayed earlier, the deep shadows of death. We know its effect. We're afraid of it. We long for the light. We long for resurrection. We long for what the sun brings. We long for hope, a new day, warmth, joy, brightness. Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Jesus is the sunrise. Jesus is the sunrise that John is preparing the way for his people to see. But how can he promise this? How can Zechariah prophesy this? How can Jesus do this? How can he promise us forgiveness of sins and life forever with him? How can we know that this greatest of promises from the greatest God will come to pass? Church, we know this because the sunrise will be blotted out for us. Because Jesus has come to take our darkness for us. See, in our sin, we love the darkness. Sin loves the darkness. It loves being hidden. One of our chief fears in all of life is the fear of exposure that light brings. Exposure on what we've done. Exposure on our hearts that we tried so far, so hard to to cover up. But friends, all those thoughts, all those deeds done in the darkness will be exposed. In the last day, God will judge you for the deeds you've done, for the thoughts you've thought in the darkness of your soul. He must. He's faithful. He's good. And a faithful and good judge does not let evil go unpunished. That's his job to punish it. But when we were under the gavel of God's punishment and justice, God sent a savior. He sent Jesus. Jesus didn't die just as a good example He didn't die just as a martyr on a terrible cross that we can kind of pattern our self-sacrificing love off of. No, Jesus died under God's judgment for our darkness, our unbelief, our sin, our unfaithfulness, our disobedience to his law. Jesus took all that darkness on himself. The light of the world became darkness. Took on darkness. So we might be saved. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He did all this so that if any would trust in him, even you, no matter what you've done, if anyone would trust in him, trust in the one who knows all the hidden darkness of your soul and has offered to take it on himself, you will be saved. The offer is still open today, friend. If you will repent and turn to God, he will cast all your darkness on his son and give his son's perfect righteousness and light to you. What an exchange. That's the gospel. That's salvation. And that's for anyone who will confess their sin and turn in faith to receive it. And church, brothers and sisters here this morning, those who are following Christ, the light has come, right? The sunrise has dawned in our hearts. And now we walk, like Paul will say in his letters, we walk not in darkness, but in the light, right? We live under Jesus's radiant glory. That means we don't fear the fear of exposure anymore because the, the light knows our darkness and it's all been placed on him. 
That's why we live desiring holiness, not to be holier than thou, like we talked about before, but because this is our new nature in Christ, to be holy as he is holy, because the light has dawned in our hearts. Charles Spurgeon, on meditating on this text, puts it like this. He says, the visits of God are like the day spring, because they end our darkness. The day spring banishes the night. Night stretches her bat's wings and is gone. She flies before the arrows of the advancing sun. The coming of Jesus to us. When he does really come into our hearts, takes away the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of sorrow, the darkness of carelessness, fear, and despair. And I love this. He says, our night is ended once and for all. When we behold God visiting us in Christ Jesus. Our day may cloud over. But night will not return. Amen, church. Blessed be the light of the world who has come to banish our darkness. As we'll sing in a few moments. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Praise the one who has given us so great a gift. Let's pray. Lord, who are we abiding in the darkness and relishing its relishing its hiddenness and privacy in our sin, who are we that you would dawn the sun of righteousness upon us? A dawning of the king. We pray, Lord, for, for those of us here who, don't, who, who do know you, who are following after you, we pray that we would not be afraid of walking in that light, which means being real about our sins to one another and to you, knowing that you have taken all the punishment on yourself which means we will not despair when we are under your loving discipline and affliction, knowing it will bring benefits to us, which means we will speak of you and kill the fear of man in our hearts and and talk to others about your good news. Help us to walk in the light of the sunrise. And I pray for those of us here who don't know you, who perhaps don't see the need. Lord, we pray that you would dawn in their hearts by your spirit this morning. We thank you that we can hear this good news and now respond to it in song. We pray we would do so in joy and in praise. In Jesus' name.